Welcome to Prepare for Takeoff. I'm the creator and host, Terry L. Cyrus. We're the podcast dedicated to amplifying Black excellence. Every week, we sit down with a proven professional or a rising entrepreneur. And this week, we have an amazing guest. We just had his father on, and he's the definition of legacy. We have Hamilton Grant. Hamilton, what's going on, bro? What's going on, team? I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, opening your, your doors for the viewers and listeners for me to be a part of this. Absolutely, bro. I mean, listen, I mean, I'm just so enamored by your family and how you guys just, you know, epitomize black excellence. So let's, you know, take our um, viewers and listeners through your backstory and, you know, whether you want to go back to childhood, whether you want to start um, in your um, collegiate studies at South Carolina State, it's, it's, it's up to you, bro. Not for sure. Uh, so born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, our family uh, has been here in this community uh, consecutively around 30 plus years. Uh, we spent some time in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, as my dad has, has talked about on his podcast with his time at Bank of America in Charlotte. But uh, primarily South Carolina, specifically Columbia, is our home. Uh, so educated in uh, Richland School District 2 for K-12, uh, graduated from high school in 2007, and then became a freshman at South Carolina State University. So I attended South Carolina State University on a band scholarship. I played trombone, uh, ended up becoming uh, a drum major my junior and senior year uh, at South Carolina State. So I pledged the band fraternity, Kappa Kappa Psi National Honorary Band Fraternity Incorporated. Then my senior year, pledged Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, graduated in 2011 uh, with a bachelor's in business administration with a concentration in marketing. And so immediately after my graduation from South Carolina State, ended up moving uh, to Huntsville, Alabama to start uh, my master's program in the fall. And so I uh, graduated with an MBA from Alabama A&M University in, in 2014. Uh, and since then I've been working full-time in the company with my father uh, no, as grant business advisors. And so, Currently, um, I'm married. My wife, uh, Alana Grant, uh, who is an amazing, amazing woman and, and someone who has an amazing story in her own right. Uh, we have two kids, Hamilton II and Harrison, and we're expecting our third. Uh, little Hilton will be here with us in May. It's crazy. All of my babies got made birthdays. We might talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we are deeply entrenched in community um community as well as professionalism uh i believe is what we're called to do um so many people have poured into us uh whether it be from my wife's line of work and in her story being in virginia and coming to south carolina uh through the tragedy of her grandfather being killed at mother emmanuel amy church or whether it's through uh, the community impact and the organizations that have poured into me personally, uh, which sparked me to want to run for public office in 2020. And so uh, I, I feel deeply that we're called to serve an area and serve a people, uh, and we take that very seriously. And you know what? We share that in common, man, because I feel the same way. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast. I want to be able to provide a voice to the voiceless and I want to be able to reach those underserved and, and and give them the opportunity to show people like yourself and your father and realize that you don't necessarily have to dribble the ball or catch a football in order to succeed. 
or, um, you know, spit a hot 16. You, you know, you can go to school, you can get your MBA like you did, you know, you can start your own business, you can go into the family business, you know, you know, the, the sky's the limit. And that's mm -hmm. hence the word prepare for takeoff. So I wanted to kind of unpack what your HBCU journey um, was. I know I attended an HBCU as well, and we do a lot of HBCU outreach at a, uh, you know, HBCUs throughout the country. Um, you name it, I'm sure we've probably been there. So tell me about your tenure, not only um, at South Carolina State, but what was it like to be a drum major um, with the marching? Is it the marching 101? Did I say that correctly? There it is. The okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, man, it was a dream come true. So I've been enamored with uh, HBCU culture my entire life. Uh, my father was a South Carolina State University graduate, um, got family members that have attended several other HBCUs from Howard University, the FAMU, to Elizabeth City State University. But for me, uh, the marching band, I was just so attracted and enamored by uh, the songs, the moves, everything they did. Uh, some of my earliest memories is, is uh, the Ronald J. Sargent uh, edition of I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus with the March of 101 coming down Main Street in Columbia during the Christmas parade. And so I just always knew I wanted to be in the marching band and specifically the 101. And so around that time, I think it was 2002, 2003, Drumline came out, which was like the biggest movie for us band geeks, right? Uh, and so it came out and it gave the world a glimpse kind of into the HBCU culture. And the fun historical fact about my journey about being in the band is uh, Mr. Eddie Ellis, who was then band director at Morris Brown College, uh, left Morris Brown to become the band director at South Carolina State. So everything Morris Brown did in the movie Drumline, he was responsible for. And that's who I marched for at South Carolina State. And that's who afforded me uh, the opportunity of being a drum major. And, you know, being in the band, and specifically being a drum major has taught me so much about life because that's where my leadership comes from, right? Uh, when I came in and did uh, drum major tryouts and became a rookie drum major, one of the veterans said, you know, being a drum major is 90% mental and 10% physical. Um, mm. That made zero sense to me after just doing uh, a hundred yard of uh, death march style uh, routines and running the stadium because all of that was physical. But what I, I quickly realized that was to get me in a mindset of, you know, how do you preserve? How do you make sure you're in fighting trim and, and physically fit? But also the leadership style of making sure that you're an effective leader versus just being a, an ordinary leader. Because at the time we had over 350 people in the band. That's 350 personalities that you got to deal with every single day. And your job and your mission is to take what the directors give you and have 350 people not only buy into it, but be excited about it. Because if you're not excited about it, everybody in the stadium on Saturday can tell you're not excited. And then everybody can tell that was a whack halftime show. And we don't do whack halftime shows in Orangeburg. And so that really gave me the insight um, on trying different leadership styles, leadership traits, what works, what doesn't work, how do you gain respect, how do you lead from behind, lead from the middle. And so by the time you, you lead from the front, you already have the respect of the people that are following. 
And so that whole experience just opened my eyes and opened my doors to limitless possibilities. And some of those things I still use today, whether it's professionally, uh, whether it's uh, in political aspirations, because, you know, you run for office, you got to be able to effectively communicate a message. Uh, you've got to be able to have people want to buy into what you want to do, buy into your vision. And then you actually got to go out and meet people where they are. And so all of these things are, are applicable in, in so many lessons that I learned just by being in the band. And I'm sure you learned a lot of those same lessons um, pledging our beloved fraternity, Omega Sci Fi Fraternity Incorporated. And Absolutely. like you said, you know, and, and mental, a lot of people don't realize mental is something, the fortitude that um, you have to be able to embody in any endeavor that you find, whether it's um, being initiated into a fraternity, whether being and you know a member of the 101 or being a member of corporate America, you yeah. have to have that fortitude. You have to have that that desire. And you know, one of the things that I'm sure resonates with you and I is perseverance. Mm -hmm. So if you're not willing to persevere, then you're not going to be able to see it through. Right. So something um, as easy, something as simple as following simple instructions. Um, you know instructions that are given out to you following it by the T just to carry out a mission because you know if you fall short of that or if you try to do more and, and show off and show out I mean it's 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 null and void and so following simple instructions you know seeing things through to the end I mean all it's it's funny because my father who's also a bruh used to always say when we were growing up uh see it through and then he would teach us the poem excuses and he would make us recite it at like eight, 10 years old and never knew what we were reciting it for. Never knew the value other than, all right, it's just something we have to do when we fall short of something and try to provide an excuse. So the question would always be, what is an excuse? And then those things always seem to come back around. It's like, oh, okay, this is where that came from. This is the importance of it. And so, you know, it there were things that were instilled in us as kids that, you know, have been lifelong uh, lessons for us. And and that is really when those things that you learn, uh, whether it be through initiation, whether it be through uh, going through organizations or being in extracurricular activities like the band, all those things play a role and play a part to your development. Now, and I know you went to Alabama A&M to get your master's. Now, did you make a conscious decision to say, I want all of my higher ed to be at HBCUs or was, was that just something that just happened organically? I'll be completely real with you. I wasn't too pressed on going straight to school right after finishing school. <laughs> For me, <laughs> I looked at it as, all right, I just did four years and then, you know, rewinding back, going into my senior year, uh, grades weren't necessarily what they could have been. So I did summer school going into my, my final year, but I did both sessions. I did session one and session two. So mm -hmm. I drove 50 miles to Orangeburg, eight o'clock in the morning and 50 miles back to Columbia after that every day for the summer and then went straight into uh, band camp, which is two weeks before classes start. And then both semesters, I had like 18 credit hours. And so wow. I really pushed myself to try to make up for uh, what I should have been doing the entire time. And so when I graduated, I was like, yo, I'm ready for a break. Let's find this job. Let's start making this money. And 
the president of Alabama A&M, who's a dear, dear friend and mentor, the former president, uh, Dr. Andrew Huginning, and then the former uh, chief of staff, Dr. Kevin Rowe, lifelong friends, lifelong mentors, loved them to death, and I owe them so much. They were at South Carolina State uh, during a pivotal time and then relocated to Alabama. And so Dr. Huginning was one of the people who wrote my letters of recommendation for Omega. And he made the call to me after I crossed. He said, hey, if you're not doing anything and you don't have anything lined up after college, come to Alabama and work on your master's and we'll take care of you. That's exactly what they did. And so I'm so grateful for that experience because outside of curriculum, curriculum just is what it is. You're going to get it from wherever, right? But for mm-hmm. me, being from South Carolina and having a home base and a safety net, it forced me to come out of my comfort zone because I knew three people in the state of Alabama and two of them were over the age of 50. So I'm not hanging out all the time of the night like with my peers, with them, which forced me into a uh, to get out of my comfort zone, meet new people, be able to create new circles, maneuver in different environments and spaces that I'm unfamiliar with, um, which again, as to the, the trajectory of professional versus personal, because now I can apply, okay, I can walk in a room where I may be uncomfortable and not know anybody and walk out the room with 30 friends. Just because mm-hmm. I've put myself in uncomfortable situations with meeting and learning people. But to the point specifically for HBCUs, I mean, I love and support our culture so much that it, you know, it only made sense. Um the uniqueness of historically black colleges and universities and what they do for not only the community but for our students it literally takes the students from wherever they are and by the time they leave they can go anywhere they want to go um we had several sayings across hbcus like start here and go anywhere um or uh enter to learn depart to serve um, all of these are not just cliche phrases. They're so true because it, it looks at, it takes whatever kind of student or person that you may be and it shapes and molds you and gives you that individual attention. Um, so oftentimes African Americans are looked at as monolithic. Um, and it's at the HBCUs, you truly see the diversity of, of African American culture. You can have uh, your Ivy League prep, uh, high school black kid who comes to a HBCU, or you can have your first generation college student. You can have your legacy college student. Um, I mean, all of these types of diverse students and makeups all come together to celebrate black excellence. I mean, it was at an HBCU where uh, I saw the most amount of black male teachers that I've ever seen in my entire life. And so having that experience and, and, and that culminating through two different HBCU experiences, which were both unique, um, it, it, it just meant the world to me. And I, I truly, that's something that I appreciate. That's something my wife and I uh, will, will, you know, give and show to our children. Uh, we both want our children to attend HBCUs. Um, nothing wrong with PWIs. I just love us that much. So. I like that. I love us that much. Bro, I'm going to run with that one. <laughs> I like that. And start here, go anywhere. I believe that's what you said. But yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, you, at West Virginia State, we had a lot of those sayings as well. You know, um, and, you know, it starts, it starts at state 
and things of that nature. I, and, and I think one of the big things that I subscribe to as far as reaching out to young people when we do HBCU outreach or now that we're looking to um, actually reach out to you know children who are still in high school, you know, try to meet them where they are, as you mentioned before, as far as politics, you have to meet the kid. If you're trying to shape the mind, you have to, you have to go to where the mind is being cultivated and mm -hmm. that's in the community. And I want to be able to show kids that I can show you better than I can tell you. I can show you a Hamilton grant. I can show you a Tony grant. I can show you an E2 Evans. I want to be able to show these examples of who you can be because unfortunately sad, but um, you know, and quite frankly, their reality may speak to something different. If you're from inner cities such as Brooklyn, New York, uh, Baltimore, or the list goes on, you may not be able to see those examples. You right. may see other examples that say, listen, if I don't want to be a cop, I don't want to be a fireman. I don't want to work for the postal service. I don't want to work for UPS. So right. now they may have 10 options of who they can be professionally, but we know there's, hundreds of options but e even like we we're grown men there are things that we're being exposed to that's further expanding our thought process so can you imagine being 15 and not only um did your parents not go to college nobody you know went to college mm -hmm. and not only did no one you know go to college but there's only a handful of things that you can be professionally and you might feel like that's not going to necessarily get you to the bag. So a lot of times these kids, they make bad decisions. But I think when you're able to show people that you can get to the bag legitimately, you know, if you put in the work and it's a slow cook process, don't go for the microwave solution. Don't go for, let me hit the block and, you know, get to the bag that may last you for a couple of years. And then you're going to spend the next 20 years behind bars. Let's get, let's come up with a long-term solution. Put, you know, put forth the effort Go, go get your four year degree, get your MBA, go to med school, whatever the case may be like. And that way, the next 20 years that somebody may otherwise be spending behind the wall, you can spend, you know, cultivating a life for yourself that not just includes you, but it includes like yourself, a wife and children, things of that nature. We want to be able to show more examples of that. And I mm -hmm. think that unfortunately sad, you know, but true, a lot of our young people, they don't have those examples. They listen to the radio and the messaging is very specific to something that contradicts what we're discussing. So, you know, I can't necessarily complain about the problem if I'm not part of the solution. So, again, right. those are all of the things that have me wired the way I'm wired because somebody poured into, poured into me at an early age. You know, I grew up in West Virginia um, adjacent to the school. Like, literally, bruh, when I say I didn't go away to school. I didn't go away to school. Like I could see the yard from my parents' backyard. Oh. <laughs> you know, I could pretty much walk to school. And, um, and, and it's one of those things like I tell, I tell kids all the time, like, listen, your parents know best. That's why they say, honor your mother and father. I was trying to get out of West Virginia, like nobody's business. I eventually left <laughs> and I've been gone for 30 years, but, um, I was trying to leave prematurely and, and a lot of my destinations, even then, were HBCUs, to your point. And um, one of those were Clark Atlanta University. And a friend of mine that I grew up with, his father was actually the president of my school at West Virginia State, Dr. Cole. Dr. Cole had since 
matriculated to Clark Atlanta University, and that's where Clark College and Atlanta College, they merged and formed um, CAU. And he was the president. And, bro, you can tell how um, just naive I was when I wrote him a letter saying, Dr. Cole, I want to apply for a presidential scholarship so I can attend Clark Atlanta University. Bro, he, you know, kindly sent me some uh, financial aid paperwork. I had to write him again. Dr. Cole, you don't understand. <laughs> My parents are not going to let me get any financial aid. They said, if I can't pay for it or get a scholarship, then I can't go. I didn't get any more letters. I guess he realized, like, okay, I'm not going to go against your parents. <laughs> you know, if they want you to go to state, that's where you're going to go. And that's where I went. And I'm internally gratefully, internally grateful because not only did I go to West Virginia State, my brother went to West Virginia State, who's also a bruh, spring 88, they decide. And then my sister, who's a Delta, um, she attended West Virginia State as well. So, you know, we, we, we all had that exposure as, as becoming a yellow jacket. And, and then, you know, it's, it's just, I, I sometimes wonder what would life be if I hadn't attended state? Cause when I, when I go home to see my parents, then I can not only go home to see them, but I can go home to see people that I've cultivated these lifelong friendships with through the fraternity, as well as people who aren't in the fraternity, who are just members right. of the HBCU community. So, right. I mean, so with that being said, and I know you had, you attended um, Alabama A&M, you got your MBA. Now, did you from there matriculate into the family business or did you do something else professionally prior to joining the business? So while I was at a and I worked in the office of the president um, which was a great experience because it gave me insight to uh, higher ed admin, which came in handy several years later when uh, I ran for board of trustees for South Carolina State. Um, and so South Carolina is different from a lot of other schools. I mean, not other schools, other states, because in South Carolina, the General Assembly elects board members from the assembly. And each university, each public university here in South Carolina has the ability, their board of trustees have the ability to hire and fire their own president versus other states who have university systems. Uh, the systems or the, the board of regents or board of governors has that ability. So it's, it's really a different political play when it comes to a lot of things in South Carolina. But the running joke in my family is I've officially been working for our family business since 2014, but unofficially since around 2005. I don't say 2005 because <laughs> that could violate a lot of child labor laws and you don't want to get in trouble with nobody. Uh, right. But, you know, our dad instilled business in us, in particular me, because I'm the oldest of, of four, in that, you know, when you're in middle school, seventh, eighth grade, and going into high school, you know, there are certain things that you want. So I may want some shoes. I may want this pair of clothes. I may want this CD because CDs were still a thing back then. Well, mom and dad not just about to give you any money. Won't you come during the summers and work for the business and learn the business and earn some money uh, while, while there? And so that's what I did every summer from eighth grade through grad school. You know, so even when I came home from Alabama on grad school, the summers I was working at the family business and really getting a chance to, to learn that and to learn skills. And, and that was great because from a curriculum standpoint, it was taking what I was learning in the classroom and making it applicable. Um, I think my thing is at the time, I just looked at it as a way to, to make some money 
and not really take advantage of what it is I was looking at and what I was learning at the time. And it wasn't until graduating from grad school that I got really serious about like if I'm going to make a thing out of this or if this is going to be a career, I at least need to know what I'm talking about, what I'm doing, be serious and be knowledgeable about it. And it it comes off now because I, I find myself in rooms because let's be honest, the financial space is dominated by white men, old white men at that. And so mm-hmm. being an uh, African-American male under the age uh, of 40, uh, I just turned 35. And so being able to articulate things and, and to speak at a fast pace when it comes to commercial lending and understanding what it is that things are looking for, uh, people don't necessarily know how to take it because uh, I got that knowledge and experience uh, at a younger age. And so when I show up into a room, I'm not just somebody sitting in the back corner listening. I'm actually leading the discussion and respectfully disagreeing when there are things that clearly say on paper that this client can can service the debt for this loan. And mm-hmm. just an older white individual telling me no because of some bogus reason. And so, you know, working with dad and understanding is a lot of things that I learned that were good. There are a lot of things that I learned that, you know, if if I had my own business and did some things, I may do it a different way. And that's not a knock and that's not a dig at all. I think we all do that in leadership. Um, I think at some point we should all sit under great leadership, good leadership and bad leadership. And you can all learn things from those uh, three different leadership styles and traits on what to do and what not to do. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I, that time um, from those years has just been very invaluable. Right. Now, and I know that you guys work in the finance space. So just talk a little bit about what you guys do and how you serve the community. Sure. So uh, Grant Business Advisors, uh, formerly known as Grant Business Strategies, small business uh, finance consulting firm where, that works with uh, nonprofits, uh, small businesses. We do a lot of commercial uh, real estate lending um, and we do some business coaching as well. So the best way that I could break it down uh, for a scenario or example purposes is we advocate on behalf of our clients that are looking for new construction uh, project, looking to do new construction projects or maybe refinance some existing debt that they may have. We take everything that the bank is already going to ask for and look for and we pretty much underwrite the deal between ourselves and we present to the client the strengths and weaknesses. And the biggest difference is we tell the clients what they can afford based off of what the analysis shows, based off of the interest rates and based off of uh, the debt service coverage ratios, which is very technical. And then after that, we actually go get the client the funds. And so we talk to about 12 to 15 banks and because uh, our package comes from financial uh, people and uh, bankers. So dad was a banker 30 plus years, as you can go back and listen to his podcast. Um, it sits on a bank board and I serve on a bank advisory board. We know what banks are looking for when it comes for approval. So because we're able to speak bankers language, then bankers understand that, OK, this isn't fluff. This is the real deal. Um, Mm -hmm. We never had the integrity or credentials of our numbers and our packages uh, ever come into question. In fact, when we worked with banks for the first time, they complimented us on how easy it was to just transpose the the package that we put together for our client 
and the banks taking that package and just putting it into their systems and just using their own formulas based off of their own guidelines and policies. And so that's what we've done successfully since the inception of the company. We've arranged over a billion dollars in financing for clients across the country. Uh, last year, we were recognized by Columbia Business Monthly Magazine, which runs publications in Columbia Market, Greenville Market, Charleston Market, and South Carolina. As uh, we voted best uh, family-owned business and best uh, coaching and business profession, professional business. And so we're, we're very grateful uh, for those nods and those awards. And, and we couldn't do it without our clients that trust us with their vision. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. And just, you know, major props to you and your dad and the whole team. And I mean, just the role that you guys serve in the community. I just think of some of those small businesses and nonprofits. If it weren't for you guys and the resources that you guys have, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the, those organizations wouldn't be able to accomplish their goals because, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do anything without financing. You know, right. I tell people all the time, man, like nobody's really digging in their own pockets, spending their own money. <laughs> you know, I, I, I learned from one of my mentors, um, um, the late Walter Yetnikoff, who was the um, president and CEO of what was known at the time as CBS Records, but you know it as Sony Music Entertainment. Right. And that was the parent company of Columbia Records and Epic Records and the whole Sony system. And, um, you know, he, he, he was a huge proponent of don't spend your own money. <laughs> and he nah. had more than enough money, but he said, don't spend your own money. And, and if people don't have access to capital, then they're limited on what they can do and what, and what they can accomplish. You know, so, um, just major props to you guys in that regard. Now, um, what, what are some of the barriers that, that you still see in the, in the uh, financial community as it relates to when people show up to the, to the table and they look like us? I mean, I know, you know, historically there was, and you know, it, YouTube has uncovered so many different things to say the yeah. least and how they had, you know, in contracts per the government, they couldn't lend to people who looked like you and I, as far as um, housing mortgages. And I'm sure that, you know, you know, um, translated to commercial lending as well. Like have, have they been able to clean all of that up to the point where they can judge each package based on its merit? So it's it's gotten a lot better. I've seen I've seen some instances where it's just like we gotta have a Come to Jesus meeting with the bank and the bankers to just call you out on your stuff. Um there have been several instances where we've told our client, hey listen, let's just not go with this bank and let us handle that discussion. And that discussion has been a very frank, honest, and hard conversation to have. Because if you look at the guidelines and you look at the principles, I can tell when you're serious about wanting to lend money, and I can tell when you're not serious. And mm -hmm. one thing, that, particularly when you're dealing with money, because that's people's lifestyle, uh, you mm -hmm. don't need to be lied to from an institution that you're putting your trust in. Now, that goes both ways, right? So right. from a client standpoint, and as a consultant, you need to disclose with us everything so we know what we're dealing with. We don't need to round third base and come home and find out that it was a foul ball. Like, it, it, <laughs> right. it, that's, that's a surprise, right? And right. so it's, it's hard for us to deal with surprises that could, you know, completely derail the entire thing. 
when that could have been something we could have taken advantage of from the beginning. And so some of the things that I see that are barriers uh, with with small businesses, I mean, uh, honestly, they're simple things. One, understanding how money works, understanding uh, understanding how money works, understanding how to interpret your, your financial data, what to look for. But another thing, particularly with our church clients, it's understanding you don't know what you don't know and don't try to know it all. Um, unfortunately, pastors, they're put on whatever pedestal that people put them on. And because mm-hmm. of that, they have to know everything about everything. So they got to know about the Bible, the New Testament, the Old Testament. They got to know uh, how to evangelize. They got to know how to uh, speak Hebrew and Greek. They got to know how to uh, how to uh, uh, provide counsel for couples and therapy. Um, then you're adding on top of that. All right, they got to know how to uh, interpret financial statements, run uh, debt service coverage ratios. Uh, they got to know how to go to these civic meetings. They, I mean, it's just a whole bunch of stuff we right. expect them to know. And then for the ones that do go to uh, uh, divinity school, financial literacy is not taught in the curriculum. So they're taught to evangelize and preach and, and how to interpret and exegete the Bible, but they're not taught how to run a church as a business. And mm-hmm. so because parishioners expect them to know so much, there's so much pressure put on them. So by the time they realize it's a mistake, there's a bit of shame and guilt in trying to come ask for help because they're expected to know everything. And even if that's not church, even if it's small business, if, if you've been or if you've seen numbers come in and you think you've been profitable, but you may not know how to record keep some of those profits and some of those numbers on a yearly basis. and the reality is your bottom line isn't what you thought it would be or should be. It's okay to not know it all, but you know, coming with humility and really having a conversation and relationship with your advisor or trusting whoever you're working with as a consultant. I mm-hmm. mean, all of that builds into the trust, into the relationship. It's easier for us to do our job when we can have a conversation, when we can be open, honest, and transparent and you not, feel like you know it all because that know-it-all attitude and mentality when it's time to put that rubber to the road and you expose yourself can really blow up in everybody's face right yeah i mean i think pride is like something that's paramount in our community and i think maybe their pride you know pride has got people in prison pride has (laughs) found people on the wrong side of up financially because people don't want to have the humility and saying, Hey, listen, I, there's things that I don't know, but people will try to wing most things and wing. You can't wing certain things. I can't wing, you know, doing some type of medical procedure. I can't wing flying a plane. I can't wing financial literacy. And a lot of times a 0% failure rate. (laughs) Exactly. Right. You know, we can't have any casualties. So now what, what can we as an, as a community, what can we do to, to improve financial literacy uh, among people who are melanated? One, uh, we need to get it in our schools. So financial literacy is not something that I know there's a big push for teaching high school students. This needs to be taught in elementary school. Um, because whether you realize it or not, we are behind in the generational wealth gap 
because we're just now seeing our first and second generations of wealth, right? And mm-hmm. even now, you still have generations that have not experienced that. So we're behind because we haven't had the access or the systemic thing. But the way to catch up or to create or shorten that gap is start teaching at a younger age. So right. both of our children, who are three and a half and one and a half, have savings accounts at banks. And so with those mm-hmm. savings accounts, when they get older, it comes with financial literacy courses on just the very basics that are taught by the bank. And all that comes into play with the service and with the relationship, because that's the package that comes with uh, the bank accounts for the children. And so having something as simple as that and having a relationship with your bankers and being able to understand that is, is something that, you know, is low hanging fruit. There are so many organizations, programs, resources that help people understand their personal finances to help them understand their business finances, even from a, a government standpoint. You've got some municipalities across the country that have offices of business opportunity where they mm. get free or uh, very minimum cost seminars where they bring in experts to help you walk through certain things. So if you're a, a company that's trying to get government contracting and you've been denied government contracts, they put on webinars and seminars on how to get government contracts with said government. And so the things are out there, we just have to be more intentional on looking and the people who are providing them have to be overly intentional about putting that message out there. I don't think it's so much today as, and and it can be blamed on my naivety or it can be blamed on my youth, but just I don't feel like there is a gatekeeping mentality behind uh, business and business opportunity and business management. But what I do feel like there is a barrier of convenience and uh, widespread knowledge on how to get these uh, things or where do I find the information to attend certain uh, webinars or seminars. And so there's a lot of responsibility put on the organizations that put these things on to overly communicate what's happening. And I think we've got to start utilizing our uh, our Greek letter organizations more when it comes to putting these opportunities out. We have to utilize our churches and our houses of worship a whole lot more, um, our HBCUs. I mean, just any kind of circle where you find Black people, Black industry, that's where we should mm-hmm. be pushing and disseminating this information. And I agree, man, information is power. And, you know, I think a lot of times people, they don't necessarily know where to start, especially when it comes to financial literacy. I mean, something as simple as saving for college. When um, you talk to people, that's still a stumbling block because the price of college continues to rise. And and if I don't necessarily have those resources, then a lot of people are like, well, maybe I'll go part-time or maybe I'll do this or maybe I won't go at all. And I think... You know, there's a lot of different things that people can explore. Again, information is power. One of the things as far as education, people are beginning to realize, I know here you can go, let's say in Jersey, you can go to like a community college for the first two years. And then you finish the next two years at, let's say, Rutgers. And and now on your degree, it doesn't say where you started. It says where you finish. Yeah. And you save some money. And so, so that's something that people are beginning to explore. And I, going, I love what you go ahead. Go I'm ahead. Sorry, bro. Going back to what you said, a lot of it is effort. 
right? And mm. so one of the things that that bothered me while I served as a board member and uh, my wife served on her uh, alma mater's foundation board and just seeing it with the bros and our, our chapters, anybody that does scholarship, mm-hmm. um, the most frustrating and nerve wracking thing is to raise money for scholarships and not have kids apply for that money. There are mm. literally millions of dollars that go untapped because students don't want to write an essay, don't want to fill out a subscription form. And so on one end, we say, all right, college is not affordable. But on the other end, there's a lack of effort because these things are available. The monies are there, but because I can't do it just on my phone or it takes longer than five minutes. Uh, right. I don't I don't even want to do it. And it really goes back to something that you said earlier about quick, easy, fast way. Well, you talking to somebody that came up in a quick, easy generation. Right. So while uh, my parents may have had may have uh, gone through a generation where they used the dial up phone or the rotary phone, I came up in a generation with dial up Internet. And with the first uh, big flip phone, cell phone, right? So take that and, and go to a 10-year gap. My sisters came in a generation where it is 5G, Wi-Fi, and internet, and everything is on a smartphone. And so we have to cater our message to where people are because mm-hmm. we can't in one breath talk about uh, well, you, you can't do the fast things. You can't do the instantaneous things. Well, that's all that generation knows. And so how do we make it applicable and, all right, break it down to reality and to sense to say, hey, everything does not appear to what it is. And you're right. Social media really plays a part into that. The music really plays a part into that. But understanding that those things are not real places. Um, because social media is not real and transparent. It's it's just what somebody wants you to see when they want you to see it. It's the difference mm-hmm. between a platform and a billboard. The platform is just used to project a message, but when you're a billboard, you're projecting an image. And you got to be able to mm-hmm. understand and decipher who does what when they do it. And so mm-hmm. catering that message to that current generation that only all they know is instantaneous, fast, microwave, no dial-up, because I remember going on AOL and having to go through the whole cycle. And if somebody picked up the phone, the cycle started all over again (laughs) (laughs) versus not having to do that at all. My phone already comes with 5G, Wi-Fi accessible access. And so it's, it's just a matter of, all right, we're dealing with a new generation. We're dealing with a new message, but some of the fundamentals can stay the same. Right, right. And I know you, um, you know, you, you've definitely had your dealings in the um, political landscape. Why do you think it's so imperative that we participate in that political process as it relates to in our community on a local or, you know, national level? Because government literally dictates everything that you do in your everyday life. Um, I'll start from the most important, from my opinion, to the least important, which all of them are important. But local government, in my opinion, is the most important form of government that you can have. Literally, local government dictates your t- what kind of property taxes you pay, 
they dictate if a uh, new high school uh, football stadium is going to be built in your backyard. Uh, it literally dictates, all right, do you have to pay more in taxes to go to a road project on the other side of the county that you may not even go through, uh, but once a month, it dictates, okay, uh, can we have early voting or do we not have early voting from a state house perspective? Uh, it dictates uh, how much funding goes to our HBCUs uh, because of who I voted to go in office. Do they value historically black colleges and universities, even if they don't look like me or even if they don't vote like me? Uh, does my state representative, state uh, senator uh, value women's rights or a woman's right to choose with her reproductive organs? I mean, mm -hmm. all of this dictates your everyday life in staying absent from the process, stays silent from the process. So on one end, you can't complain about why things are the same way when you don't even take the time to vote. And I think mm -hmm. voting is such the minimum because we put so much emphasis on voting. And I think that's the least you can do, right? The least you can do is show up on a Tuesday every cycle and vote. Um, where the effort comes in, and, and this is where things get tricky and sticky, is following the people that you voted for while they serve and while they govern, right? Because really during election season, you're meeting a representative. You ain't meeting a person. Um, right. These people are, are very charismatic. Uh, they, they are well put together. They, they portray a certain image because they're, we are in the business of wanting you to like us. It's a popularity contest. Let's call it what it is, right? And so because we come off a certain way when we want something for you does not mean we are that same way when we actually govern. And so following people to see how they govern really should be the test on do they earn your vote again? And what I've experienced is some people who ask for our vote get in those rooms, stay silent, don't know what they're doing, don't know what they're talking about, or just act a complete plum fool and make decisions that hurt us because they don't know what they're doing. And because we remember the representative that they sent to meet us to ask for our vote, in the next four mm -hmm. years, we blindly walk into the polls and vote for that same person again, not knowing that they're working against us more than what some people would say the man is working against us. And so being an informed and an educated voter uh, is something that's vitally, vitally important and, and not just all the concentration on voting. And you know what, Brock, and when you we go into these voting booths, when they, so obviously you, but so familiar with who the candidate is like you said you're meeting their representative and you're not even meeting them a lot of times you're seeing their commercials and their commercials are uh, presenting all the things that they think that their target audience wants to hear and see so you don't necessarily know who you're dealing with it's almost like dating so when yeah. you're dating somebody you're going to meet their representative it's not until you're in that relationship do you begin to realize who you're really dating who you know what I'm saying? Right. who you really signed up so to be with so let me say this. My most frustrating thing as a candidate was hearing, oh, we don't ever see you. Oh, we don't. It's, one, it's impossible for a candidate to be at all the things, all the places at the same time. It's impossible. We're going to miss events. There are going to be events we have no idea are happening. And quite frankly, there's going to be events that are not in our district where we can spend more time in our district getting votes versus getting popularity 
because you can't vote for us and you're not going to donate to our campaign anyway. So I can spend my time better. But the most frustrating thing is because a good candidate is going to pay the money to get the database to call people who had voted in the last three, four elections in that district and ask the voter for their vote. And what frustrates me is I'll take the time. Usually I did call time anywhere from three to five hours a day, every day to call voters around the clock. And what bothered me is, was I had to spend more time explaining how I got your number, uh, what it is I'm running for, what that does, telling you, yes, you live in that district because I would not pay money to get your information uh, if you did not live in the district, then actually telling people what my vision was for the seat that I was running for. And so while some of this is on the candidate, a lot of it, and I place more emphasis on the voter, because we have to, we, we can't just, when somebody reaches out to us as a candidate, want to be offended that they got our number. That's public information. Whether you know it or not, that is public information where when you sign up to do voter registration, that information is sold off to these campaigns and to these uh, parties where they can buy that database. That just is what it is. And so you can't be offended that I'm calling to try to reach out and make that effort to introduce myself. Uh, and then on the flip end say, well, I only see him on TV or I only hear his ads on the radio when I tried to build a connection and a relationship with you on the, uh, on, on the front end. And so it's, it's a tricky nuance to this whole thing is a whole lot of lessons learned uh, from my campaign and my election. But it is frustrating when people make the statement that we don't ever see this person or we don't know this person when they've made at least three attempts to try to get to know you. And you are worried about how I got your number versus how will you do good at this job? Right. And they might hang up on you in the process. <laughs> oh, they're going to hang up. <laughs> And what I do, I call right back because they're going to send me a voicemail. I leave a voicemail. There but you go. The most re one of the most rewarding things is talking to first-time voters, and they'll say, I've never had a candidate call me before, or mm. I've never met a candidate, or I've never had somebody do a job. So that's very rewarding. So let me ask you, what part does the faith-based community play in the political process? The faith-based community can do so much. One, I don't think the faith-based community or the Black faith-based community utilizes the political process like they should. The white faith-based community or the evangelicals do it all the time. That's mm -hmm. where you get a lot of these agendas. That's where you get a lot of these bills uh, that they claim are pro-Christian uh, values that actually mm -hmm. contradict everything about the Christian faith when you really think about it and look at it. Mm -hmm. um, black religious houses, one, the pastor is everything. The pastor is preacher, the pastor is the chief fundraiser, the pastor is the president, whatever it is you want to put that title or that role on the pastor. Pastors should make sure that everybody over the age of 18 in their congregation is registered to vote. That's the very first thing that you can do. Uh, you can also utilize whenever there's an election coming up, all right, our primaries are coming up here. 
Uh, the general election is coming up here. You don't even have to, to endorse a candidate to put that 501c3 or that nonprofit status up in jeopardy. You're educating your congregation and actually mm-hmm. open the door and open the opportunity for each candidate to actually come visit your congregation, whether that be in an intimate setting, whether that be in a worship setting, and make sure that is the start of the relationship. And I'll take it a step further. I believe congregations should have a a board or small ad hoc committee made up of several people that every month say we're going to go to a different uh, board meeting, whether that is school board, whether that's city council, whether that's county council. We're going to come back and report that information to our committee to share with our pastor so our pastor can tell in the announcements what things are on the horizon in the community. And this is this is a real life example of how that can be so powerful. Um, here in Richland County, uh, Scout Motors is uh, locating their international headquarters in our uh, county. So Scout is an EV uh, truck company, and so it's a four billion dollar investment with four thousand jobs coming to our county. It's one of the largest economic uh, investments in the state's history and definitely the largest in our county's history. Understanding who the players are and understanding what goes into that and what jobs are coming can, from the pulpit, say, okay, if you are looking for a job, this is here. They are looking for one, two, three. You should apply. This is how we do it. And then invite that company into your church to do a career fair. So what that does is you're, you're giving people jobs, right? The church doesn't operate without tithes and offerings. So people who may not have been tithing can't provide the excuse of I don't have money to give because you just got a job from somebody we invited to come into the church to do a career fair. And so all of that works from a political standpoint that may not necessarily be from an elected official standpoint, but from just what happens in county or city or local government. And so it's more than just from a... uh, an elected position, but more so from a position of, all right, what is happening around me? Because we can come in and have good church, but the church and the ministry happens when I leave the sanctuary and go outside. And how do what I learned in the building translate to how I affect the community? And that's real mm-hmm. ministry, in my opinion. Now, I agree. And obviously, faith is very important to you. So how does faith guide you in your um, professional endeavors? Uh, it's, it's, it's everything. I mean, there it definitely increases your prayer life. Um, you can't do a whole lot of things without talking to God. Uh, it, right. And as I get older um, and there are goals and, and things that I have, and as I get wiser, uh, it makes your prayer life way more intentional because now I'm in a position where there are opportunities that look like God, but is it really him? And so mm. being able to place yourself in a space to where you seek and listen for his voice so that you make the right decision. Because let's be honest, a lot of opportunities are good opportunities, but if you're not called to that specific assignment for that time um are you really spinning your wheels are you wasting your time or delaying you from where you're really supposed to end up and none of that comes but through faith and through prayer 
um, through having right relationship uh, with God, going to church, really applying what it is that you learn, getting in a good church because every church ain't good. Uh, right. <laughs> but making sure <laughs> that that all of that plays a role in, in having uh, spiritual influences and mentors that can check you uh, and be able to correct you without you getting offended and claim correction as hate. Um, so all of that has played a part in the faith journey and, and in the walk. What are three things that you can leave our um, viewers and listeners with? Three things that will help them prepare for takeoff. Three things that will help prepare for takeoff is, one, show up. Um, showing up is half the battle. Um, it takes courage. It takes uh, it takes uh, uh, in addition to courage. It takes a lot of of belief in self. It takes confidence. Um, just to show up means that you're present. You're ready to accept what's there. You're ready to take on. You're ready to learn, and you're ready to to build off of that. Show up. The, the second one is speak up. Once you're in the room or once you're there and once you're present, actually say something. Um, the courage that it takes to say something and speak truth to power, I promise you that there are a lot of people who feel and think what you're thinking, but for whatever reason are too nervous or too afraid to actually say it. And you mm -hmm. saying it gives them the courage to say, hey, I believe that too. I want to follow that person's leadership. So show up, speak up, and stand up. Stand up for something. Stand up for what you believe in. Stand up for uh, the values that you have that create the decisions that you make. Um, I can I can respect a person a whole lot more even if I don't agree with them if they stand on a principle that they believe in and they can effectively communicate what that principle is. I may not agree with it. I may not like it, but at least you know why you're doing it even if you're doing it for a crazy reason. Um, right. So those are three things that, that I, I can I can leave uh, with viewers to take off. And then when you actually take off, you know, enjoy the flight. Um, when you're in the airplane and when you're taking off actually from a, a runway, you know, there are times where when you ascend, you go through different clouds and different levels of turbulence. Um, but once you're on the flight and, and you're on cruise control, actually take in the scenery. And that's something I think metaphorically we don't do, particularly as African-American males. We're so focused on, all right, once we hit a goal, what's next? What's next? What's next? And we mm -hmm. don't appreciate the small victories and taking in those small victories and understanding that you have progressed over time because when you started something, you didn't know nothing about it. And now two years later, you're an expert on a panel of being able to do all these other things. Appreciate that, even if it doesn't come out to a big bag from a monetary standpoint. And so mm -hmm. taking, in, taking in the scenery and taking in what it is that you've accomplished is, is something that I would leave with listeners and viewers. Yeah, Brian, I couldn't agree more, man. And just thank, you know, I just wanted to thank you for, you know, giving us some of your time. I know you're busy, you know, you're operating in a uh, in the capacity of president at the family business. I'm sure that keeps you busy. I'm sure you're also, and I know you're also involved in different things in the community. So we just wanted to salute to you, you know, salute you and just give you your flowers. I'm sure, you know, I've just 
having done our due diligence, I see that you, you've gotten your fair share of flowers to say the least as far as mentions in magazines, you know, top, you know, the top 30 under 30 or the top 30 under 35. I believe it was when I checked out your bio, I may be saying that incorrectly. So, um, I know that you've had write-ups in local publications. So man, I, I couldn't be prouder of you, man. It's always good to see, you know, brothers that are like-minded doing, you know, phenomenal work in the community, man. So just wanted to salute you and thank you for giving us um, this, this time, you know, on, on, on a busy day. Cause I, I know that there's a lot of different places that you could be, but you're here with us. So wanted to appreciate and show your appreciation for that. And thank you. Likewise, just as you giving me flowers, I got to give you your flowers, the work that you've done over the years. And then starting this platform to introduce not only just your circle and your network, but networks across the world uh, to everyday people who just have a passion for making things better than the way they found it. I mean, you are literally putting your name and your reputation on the line for strangers in offering a cosign because people just want to do something good. And that's not something that you have to do. That's not something that that you have to put out there, but you take the time and you take the effort to actually research and get to know these individuals. And so for that, I thank you because you didn't have to do it, but you did. So I'm grateful. I appreciate that, bro. So um, just wanted to um, give you the opportunity to share whatever contact details you would like to share with listeners and viewers, whether or not you're on social media, what's the best way to reach you if somebody wanted to reach out to Hamilton, uh, to Hamilton Grant? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, now known as X, which is crazy. I'll never call it X. It'll always be Twitter. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Grant, 4SC, G-R-A-N-T-F-O-R-S-C. Um, and then on Facebook, Hamilton R. Grant, and same as LinkedIn. That's great, man. So again, wanted to thank you for joining us. I wanted to thank all of the listeners and viewers for joining us as well. As you know, every week at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays, we drop new episodes where you're going to continue to listen to proven professionals and rising entrepreneurs. Whether you're watching us on Spotify or you're listening on Amazon Music, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeart, or Pandora, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. And every week we're going to bring you guests that are going to continue to help you prepare for takeoff. And once again, Hamilton, thank you for joining us. And, you know, I couldn't, you know, be, you know, more proud of all of the work you're doing. And hopefully we can continue to uh, dialogue and figure out ways that we can help, you know, pour into what it is you're doing locally and whatever resources we have, you know, we, we, we more than happy to share those resources with you. So again, I wanted to thank you for joining us. Thank you, brother. I'm grateful. Appreciate you. And once again, I wanted to thank all of the viewers and listeners for joining us. And until next time, continue to prepare for takeoff. Thanks a lot.